become attrition Come the reek of bones Come attrition, come hell This is why, why we fight, why we lie awake. This is why, this is why we fight. When we die, we will die with our arms unbound. This is why. This is why we fight Come hell Bride of quiet Bride of all unquiet things Bride of quiet Bride of hell Come the infantry Come the archers of hell This is why Why we fight Why we lie awake This is why this is why we fight When we die, we will die With our arms unbound This is why, this is why we fight Come hell Come hell Come to me, come to me now Lay your arms around me This is why, this is why we fight Come hell Come hell Come hell Come Not for long covering This Is Why We Fight from the Decemberists. 
And this is KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 on the FM dial, krfp.org. The show is Labor Lines. I'm John Andercheck. I'm recording this on the 17th of September from my home in Longview, Washington. Uh, it's going to get played, all goes well, on the 21st of September, which should be the equinox. So after that, the days will be shorter than the nights as we go into the fall. Coming up on the show will be an interview with Chris Stroh covering uh, Idaho and fair wages, an initiative process to deal with the minimum wage, among other things, and a replay of an interview with the Santa Barbara uh, bookstore organizers. And there'll be a music along the way. Since Chris Stroh and her initiative and her the initiative she's dealing with there that she's part of is uh, directly related to uh, the the play audience here, if you will, the broadcast area of KRFP. I'm going to play it twice tonight, uh, right after uh, this, right after I do this introduction. Excuse me, and then later in the show. So a little bit different there. There'll be a replay of that. It, each the interview runs about 17, 18 minutes. So I'm going to get right into that. But first, I'd like to thank Jill and Mark Lawrence for adopting labor lines under KRSP, adopt the, D, adopt the DJ program, a way that you can specify what of the, all the great programming on KRFP you'd like to support. If you'd like to become a general member, please go to krfp.org and find out how you can be part of this community-supported, community-supporting radio station. Again, I'm John Andercheck. The show, Labor Lines, is going on its third year. Going on about a year is a podcast, Labor Lines, which you can find on Anchor FM, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and some other platforms. That way, if you get into the show at some point, can't listen to the entire show, you can uh, find it on that platform again, Anchor FM. Thank you so much. If you'd like to get hold of me, you could do that at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com. Thank you. This is John Andercheck with Labor Lines. Labor Lines, the radio show on KRFP, 90.3 FM, Moscow, Idaho. And Labor Lines, a podcast that you can find on Anchor FM and other platforms. Today, the 9th of September, I'm joined by Chris Stroh out of Boise, Idaho. Chris and I have connected through Facebook. Chris is working on an initiative, really pushing it along, getting it out on the social media to raise the dismal minimum wage in the state of Idaho. Um, my former uh residency. I, I moved over to Longview here uh, just earlier this year. So I commend you, Chris. I thank you for joining me. And I'm going to kind of turn the show over to you. So go ahead, introduce yourself, if you will. And let's talk about this initiative. Sounds great. Hey, thanks, John. Thanks for, for inviting me. So yes, um, we have an, an initiative that will um, go on the 2020 ballot. Um, and it was an initiative to increase the minimum wage to $13 per hour and the tip employees' minimum wage wage to $10 an hour. And then there's also two um, 
other clauses that would remove. Right now, there's a training wage that's four twenty-five an hour for the first ninety days for people under the age of eighteen, and then there's a prohibition about that prevents local jurisdictions from setting their own higher minimum wage, and we would remove those two provisions from Idaho statute. Well, wow, that, I mean, that's excellent when you lay out all those uh, facets. Uh, yeah, this tipping wage is uh, horrid in my my book. I've talked to uh, organizers in New York City, Chris, about the tipping wage, how it came about, uh, very interesting history behind it. But uh, to me, uh, the tipping wage uh, lays so many of the most vulnerable people, even more vulnerable, uh, you know, for harassment, uh, for uh degrading behavior on part of the customer, sadly, and uh, kind of demeans their work. So you really, it's a very encompassing uh, initiative. You want to give us some background on that, how it kind of put it together? Sure. Um, so there was a group that tried to put this initiative on the ballot for two, um, for 2020, and um, we got shut down by COVID. And so um, the I call it for a fair wage is the name of the group has reconstituted itself and has developed this new initiative um, that's a little bit different from the one we had before and we've been collecting signatures for about um, six weeks and generally find it's very much of a bipartisan issue um, I a little bit of background the, the minimum wage in Idaho is 725 and has been 725 since 2009 that was the last time there was was any change. And believe it or not, Idaho has a slightly higher tip, tip wage. It's um, 335 where the federal minimum is like, it's two-something. But still, you know, um, I mean, even working full-time at 725 an hour, um, the, an individual would make like $15,000 a year, and, and it's, um, you know, you can't live on that. You have to probably have, you know, two full-time jobs, you know, at minimum wage or something close to that to make, um, to be able to support yourself. And um, there have been legislators who've tried to raise the minimum wage um, each legislative session, um, but usually the bill does not get out of committee. And so uh, I had worked on the Medicaid expansion initiative, and, uh, you know, if the legislature is not going to act, um, I always will have to do it for them. <laughs> excellent, Chris. That's excellent, and uh, and congratulations for on the Medicare ex- Medicaid expansion. Excuse me, I was living in Idaho when that passed. I was living in Idaho County, and in a very uh, red county, uh, if just to use the local terminology, I mean accepted terminology. Excuse me, uh, very red county. Uh, it that initiative passed overwhelmingly. And then, of course, the legislature tried to uh, uh, train wreck the initiative process. That was a big fight uh, by the groups. And uh, the court, I think, overturned that because they were trying to make it almost impossible to get an initiative on the ballot. So that battle had been fought. I mean, you're constantly in the trenches, Chris. I I, I truly admire what you're doing there. As I mentioned before we got on the air, uh, we connected on on Facebook. I I, I admire you because... um, uh, you keep uh, you have a very civil tone on Facebook, which is uh, like we we're saying is not. It's, sadly, it's not that common. Uh, as my friend Mark Anderlich says, we have to learn to speak to each other on social media. Uh, what we try to say is we, you have to speak to each other as if you were on the 
on the work floor, at the office, at the park with your kids. Uh, and you've done a great job with that. And again, a very encompassing bill. You got rid of that training wage, which, I mean, doesn't pass the giggle test. I mean, uh, uh, the $7 an hour uh, minimum wage, now seven twenty-five, Chris, at a 2,000-hour full-time equivalent, $14,000, $15,000 an hour, uh, you'd have to work, like you say, two jobs. And again, you're not getting any uh, benefits usually. Uh, and it certainly undermines, if I will say this, it undermines the idea that uh, you, you're supporting families, you're family-friendly, you're, you're, you're family-supportive if you're forcing people to uh, live on the margin. So I'll, 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 let's go ahead. What's your thoughts? Well, just exactly what you said. Um, I think many people have thought that the minimum wage is um, a, quote, starting wage, but actually the, the average age of somebody who is earning a minimum wage is 34 in Idaho. Um, we've seen a number of companies start to raise the wage to attract workers back into the workforce, and um, but there's still a... a about 20,000 um, in Idaho that um, earn under $8 an hour. That's for the labor department. And, um, you know, we've certainly seen both Oregon and Washington have been raising their minimum wage about a dollar a year since 2016. And at the same time have been able to, they have unemployment that's lower than the national average, their bankruptcy rate has gone down, and their poverty rate has gone down. And, and I certainly agree with what you say about it forces people to live on the on the margins. Um, you know, I think there are some companies that have a business model where they're, they pay a low enough wage that the, their workers will have to rely on our social safety net. And I, for one, question whether people want to have their tax dollars be used to support incredibly cost, profitable businesses that, you know, refuse to pay their workers, um, I would say, what they're worth. Excellent point. Excellent point. A bunch of excellent points there, Chris. Again, uh, they uh, uh, they're, they're basically welfare recipients. The big companies, the little companies that are using that minimum wage because uh, without any type of access to uh, health care uh, necessarily for folks for other social services. Again, they're they're uh, they're uh, have to rely on uh, both a. Uh, uh, government safety net and community safety nets uh, when a, a, a decent paying job would eliminate that. I think of the stress too on people and um, and I see it with my work um, in a school district nearby here. I mean, there's a lot of stress on families and and kids don't miss that, do they? So again, if you want to, if you want to talk about family values, uh, let's talk about where the rubber meets the road and uh, give people a uh, something to get up in the morning and feel they're going to have a better chance for themselves and their family and uh, a, a big step or small whatever however you want to call it here uh, I commend you for the work and I really see it as a way of uh, supporting families yeah I would agree with you I think I, one of the things I like about it is it it you know basically allows a person to help themselves I mean it it really is that that hand up I mean they'll have an individual is going to have to work to get that higher minimum wage. And I, um, it's an old-fashioned phrase, but I, I do believe in the dignity of work. I think that a lot of people, the way people feel about themselves, has to do with what they do for a living. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're paid um, well and you're treated 
as a valuable employee. I think that um, you have more loyal employees, you have less turnover. Um, yeah, so I think it's important. I agree 100%. That, right, work should, uh, as, as my beliefs system uh instructs me work should make the person better uh, work the human is the subject of work not the object that, that work through work we should become better and uh and again as social animals uh human beings in a society this is how it this is how it gets done by people like you chris i commend you and all those working on this initiative uh to uh, uh translate our beliefs into uh the, the actual workings of society. So, Chris, have you achieved enough signatures to get this on the ballot? No, not yet. We have till next um, April. We have to um, get 63,000 uh, signatures from uh, registered voters in Idaho. And um, like I said, we began about six weeks ago. But having seen it work during um, in the Medicaid expansion initiative, uh, I think there's a really good possibility. I, I will tell you that it is an issue that appeals to people across, you know, on both sides of the um, political spectrum. I mean, most people, I, we would have a sign up and people would say, oh, I need to sign that, you know. Um, and, and that always, uh, you know, we've got a state in Idaho that has a lot of more conservative and independent voters and we have to appeal to that, that voter base to get this initiative passed. Correct. And that's interesting. Again, as we said earlier on, uh, before we got on uh, on recording here, Chris, uh, uh, the workplace is the ultimate uh, popular front of AUL. Uh, we can, uh, uh, the both sides play us like fiddles on the social issues, but people go to work pretty much uh, beyond survival. We want people to go to work thinking they're going to have a better life for themselves and their family and uh, this is a step in the right direction. Uh, one, a another aspect of this I want to cover, and again, I'm speaking with Chris Stroh out of Boise, Idaho. She's working on an initiative to, among other things, raise the minimum wage in the state of Idaho, both for the uh, standard wage and tipping wage, and eliminate what they call training wage. Uh, almost sounds like slave wages. I'll just lay that out as my opinion. And uh, well, one of the other aspects of it is you you would allow uh, municipalities to have the authority to raise their local minimum wage. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And we think that would be allow local municipalities to reflect, um, you know, their local economy. I mean, uh, you know, Sun Valley, for instance, has been importing workers from uh, Twin Falls because, um, you know, it's very hard to find a sizable workforce in a small town, and um, you know the legislature passed the, uh, some legislation that you know did not allow that prevented them from raising their own minimum wage, and um, you know we think that, that that would be a good step to go and let um, you know have local government control. You know, if if local leaders feel that um, they their economy could support a higher minimum wage, I mean it should be up to them. Absolutely. It is an interesting one. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, Chris. They speak about local control, states' rights, on and on. And this is just my opinion. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Uh, but except when it comes, kind of like the mafia, except when you're messing with their money, right? And, you know, I lived in Idaho for a number of years. Uh, it, 
there's almost a myth about a rural area being less expensive to live. Uh, Again, as you mentioned, there's pockets like Sun Valley, I think maybe Coeur d'Alene, Sandpoint, Idaho, where it isn't. But generally speaking, uh, you certainly have to have reliable transportation. There's expense there. Uh, Gasoline is not that less expensive. Food is not less expensive. And sometimes rent can be a real challenge. So I I just feel that that the kind of a myth that has to be bunked that rural areas don't need a raise in their minimum wage because it's cheaper to live there. I I don't agree with that. But what's your take? Well, definitely, I think that, um, you know, certainly if you read about Valley County, there are... you know, people who've turned their back pasture into a into a park for RVs, so that you know, people who come up and work um, seasonally can have a place to live. And um, you know, so that's another part of the the equation. I mean, we need more affordable housing in Idaho, but um, you know, it's long. In my opinion, it's a long past time to raise the minimum wage. Absolutely. You know, the minimum wage started under Roosevelt was, it wasn't that, you know, we weren't talking about fast food jobs for teenagers, which is like you said, a myth now that the average age is 35. I mean, ask anyone, if you go into a a fast food place or any place that typically uh, uh, uses that minimum wage, you're not seeing young people working there necessarily. so there's that. So this would go a ways. I'm, I'm, I seen criticism on one side or the, you know, one side saying it's not enough, but it looks like he did some polling. You're, you're, you're aiming to uh, uh, hit the mark there as far as getting it uh, uh, passed among the, like you say, may appeal to uh, a broad spectrum of the uh, electorate. Is that correct, Chris? Exactly. We, we actually looked at um, uh, 12 Fifteen dollars an hour, and there was a there was a path forward for fifteen, but um, it wasn't um, you know thirteen were passed by, by a healthy margin, and um, even if you know we run into some opposition, and um, you know frankly even thirteen is almost doubling the existing minimum wage, and um, so we want to pass something um, that would have by or would have a spectrum of, of support. You know, one thing you mentioned about, um, you know, there are fast food restaurants that are now paying a lot more, and I, I often hear criticism of that raising the minimum wage would be inflationary, but I, I think as probably the last year has shown, um, you know, maybe those fast food restaurants that are now paying 13 or $14 to start, but the cost of, you know, a big Mac has not gone up. So uh, the fear that it would be inflationary, I think, is... is um, Certainly Absolutely. I agree 100%. Excuse Washington me. And Washington have been increasing their minimum wage about a dollar a year. And, um, you know, certainly the, the cost of a Big Mac and, I don't know, a grander Spokane has not, you know, has not gone up substantially. I agree 100%, and certainly unemployment, you know, people looking for work, uh, employees, but uh, we're in a different time now, Uh, there's some power to the workers, I haven't seen this, I'm 66, I haven't seen this, uh, and I wasn't even old enough to get into the workforce then, Uh, but since the 60s and 70s, uh, when we had uh, uh, 
uh, bread and guns, Vietnam and the Great Society programs. There's a lot of power to workers. I think you're hitting a good spot there, Chris. I, again, I commend you for your work. I'm not here to gainsay it. Uh, you've done your research. That's the name of the game when you enter this field, which is politics, um, it, regardless, how, however you want to frame it. Uh, I commend you for your work. So um, if there's anything else to add, and, and, and anyone listening, you know, this will play on the radio station up in Moscow, Idaho. And uh, anything you want to add, how people could uh, find out more about it and get involved. Go ahead. complimentary i um it is really it's it's fun to get out and talk to people and hear what they care about so we have a website fairwageid.org and we'd encourage um anyone to go to go to that website um you can uh fill out an interest um there's a place to enter your contact information and we'll be in touch we have a group in moscow that has been gathering signatures for a couple of months and i know they'd love some help um so if, you, if people will give us their contact information, we'd be happy to put um, you in touch with the local leaders. And there's also, you can also print a petition from our website and, you know, collect signatures on your own. Excellent, Chris. Once again, uh, uh, I'm just just honored to have you on this radio show. We'll get it out. Again, this is John Andertrick with Labor Lines, uh, KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, Labor Lines, the podcast. So uh, I'm going to, uh, let you go here. Stay on. Stay on the phone here. But again, I'm, I'm gonna. Thanks again for taking your time to be on this interview. Hey, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All the time will come up when the winds will stop. Stillness in the wind for a hurricane begins The hour and the ship comes in All the seas will spread and the ship will end And the sands on the shore will be shaken The tide will sound and the waves will pound The morning will be breaking The fishes will laugh as they swim out of the path The seagulls, they will be smiling on the sand, the brown is down He out and the shit comes in No words I use for getting shit confused Not be understood, say it's broken The chains of the sea when I'm busted in the night We buried at the bottom of the ocean Sail shift, boat drifts out to the shoreline. The sun will expect every face on the deck. Yeah, that the ship comes in. Then the sails will roll out the carpet of gold. The young will be told to be a touch in. And the ship's wise man will not do it again. Oh, our world is watching. From that place I think they're dreaming They'll pinch themselves and scream Know that it's for real 
Pogues covering Dylan's When My Ship Comes In and that interview with Chris Stroll with Idaho's For a Fair Wage. Very interesting uh, proposal they put together covering more than a minimum wage, Get uh, working on the tip wage, uh, allowing mis- municipalities that local control that so many of those who are opposed to raising a minimum wage are so supportive of. And also dealing with that training wage, which sounds like uh, indentured servitude to me. John Andertrick's my name. The show's Labor Lines uh, coming up next. If I put it together, a replay of an interview with the Santa Barbara bookshop folks that goes back a few months ago. Real interesting story of their organizing efforts. KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 FM. Find us on krfp.org. Thank you so much. And the correction there, that's a Santa Cruz, bookstore at Santa Cruz, and that's coming up right now. Thank you. This is John Andrzejczyk with Labor Lines. Labor Lines, the podcast on Anchor FM and other platforms. And Labor Lines on the great community-supported station of Moscow, Idaho, KRFP 90.3 FM. Joining me today, June 27th, 2021, from my home in Longview, Washington, is Casina and Celeste with Bookshop Santa Cruz. They're going to be discussing their organizing efforts at their workplace. So once again, thank you for uh, joining me today, and uh, the show is all yours. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Um yeah, why don't I start uh, a little bit about kind of what led up to our organizing efforts and kind of our reasons for, for organizing our workplace. Um, I think uh, that, you know, the pandemic has uh, shown a lot of um, value of our workers, you know, the quote-unquote essential workers, the people who are on the front lines risking their health to get you your groceries and, and coffee and et cetera. Um, not to mention healthcare workers. So, you know, uh, when we uh, shut down, you know, in March, like the rest of the world, um, a lot of people, left, a lot of our favorite coworkers, and and you know, our beloved comrades, uh, you know, were were not able to, to work anymore. Um, and then when uh, we were asked to come back, we were given about four days to decide 
whether we would be comfortable coming back to the store or whether, um, you know, we would uh, effectively render our uh, tender our resignation uh, and then no longer be eligible for unemployment benefits. And um, our first organizing action kind of came came from there. We talked amongst ourselves via email and uh, came up with a list of items that, you know, we wanted to see addressed before coming back to work. Questions that we had about the safety of working um, in the store and sent an an email collectively and we got a a response. We got a response on those items, what our concerns were. Um, and we were able to have the, those questions answered. And it kind of snowballed from there. We continued talking about what our working conditions were like, um, what we expected, what was working, what was not working. And it, it became very clear to us that uh, a union was going to be the only way forward in the sense that uh, there are a lot of things that you can ask of your boss, but they have uh, no obligation to provide those things or even communicate to you about those things without uh, a contract. So for us, um, in order to see actual results and and actual communication about the things we're concerned about, uh, you know, a union was the only way to make that happen. And, uh, you know, we polled our workers, we talked uh, together. That's what the bulk of our organizing was, was just chatting with each other. What are you concerned about? What do you feel like is working? What would you like to see improved? Um, and in doing that, you know, we saw that we had a lot of a lot of support for the union, um, you know, over 50 percent, well over 50 percent amongst floor staff in our receiving department and um uh, our sidelines department. Um, so, uh, you know, then we, we began, uh, organizing, we got put in touch with, uh, EWOC, the emergency workplace organizing committee, um, the collaboration between UE United Electric and DSA. And we got connected with an organizer in New York who had a ton of experience and, and kind of held our hands, through the whole thing. And then through him, we got connected with CWA communication workers of America and they ended up being a really good fit for us. They have a a local presence here in Santa Cruz. Um, They've got a ton of experience and they were excited to organize, you know, a smaller store. Um, So once we got in touch with them, things moved pretty quickly. We got, uh, you know, cards signed, sent them off. Uh, We presented a mission statement with about 13 concerns that were the the biggest concerns among staff. Uh, We were not voluntarily recognized, and so we petitioned uh, the NLRB to hold an election. Uh, Election was held, and then in uh, February, we all voted by mail. It was then counted, and we we won our election, which was major cause for celebration. and we really couldn't have done it without our local DSA chapter. They provided really invaluable support and experience and networking. Uh, we hold we held several supportive rallies in front of the store, uh, not not boycotts or anything like that. We wanted people to come support the store and, and let management know that that uh, the customers support the workers and the organizers. Um, and we got local speakers, you know, people from city council, other labor activists, uh, local workers uh, to come and speak. And um, we got a lot of support 
uh, from the community, people were really excited to see their favorite bookstore get organized. And uh, a lot of people were surprised that we weren't already unionized also, which was kind of a, a funny deal. Um, but in any event, yeah, we, we won the election and we have since moved on to bargaining. Um, and so we are currently bargaining our freshman contract. Uh, we've been in negotiations for maybe three months now. Since March. Yeah, since March. Um, so that's that's currently where we're at in, in the game. Oh, uh, wow. Okay, a few things. Yeah, it's interesting. I ought to note uh, that this is my third interview in a row with people organized with the Communication Workers of America. So, again, an outstanding job by them. Uh, the last two were through their News Guild operations. Um, and uh, so that's uh, noteworthy. Uh, one thought I had listening to you uh, speak about how you start reaching out to your fellow workers is that uh, – my sense of things is is the workplace is the most uh, is the common front, the popular front, if you will. Uh, everyone brings their subjective uh, life to the workplace, but uh, we we basically ninety nine percent of us go to work, don't we? Yeah, and, and you know the the other thing to note is that we were organizing during the the bulk of the pandemic. You know, people were freaked out. Uh, we weren't able to meet in person like you maybe typically would hold like a pizza party or something. We were talking over Zoom, phone calls, email, meeting for coffee, one on one masks. I mean, we kind of had to reconfigure how to organize in that, in that way. And that was something that, you know, even people with the most experience organizing don't really have an answer for. We, we kind of, you know, we've never done this before. Uh, none of us have, you know, organized a union from the ground up. And, um, you know, there, there was a very steep learning curve for us and that, that was a, even an extra hurdle. So, uh, to win, uh, our election was especially, uh, an especially sweet victory. Right. And historically, I know, I've noted in other uh, discussions, other sessions with organizers, um, uh, this, uh, again, uh, with uh, uh, congratulations, or if you will, uh, pointing out the CWA is willing to look at smaller workplaces. Uh, you know, we did have that effort down in uh, Alabama with the uh, Amazon, excuse me, but when you look at historically, pretty much uh, the days of organiz organizing thousands or more at one plant, uh, as we did see in the 30s with the atomized workplace, uh, we may not see that often again. Uh, so to see labor uh, accepting the current 21st century situation is encouraging. Yeah, I agree. And we're really excited to be, um, you know, a part of the CWA family. And, you know, lucky for us also, we've been in contact with other small independent bookstores and many of them have gone on to organize. And, um, you know, we, we got experience for, for example, Powell's up in Portland, Oregon, that have been organized, uh, unionized for a, a pretty long time and a few other local uh, independent booksellers. Um, and so, yeah, we're seeing, you know, this kind of um, this movement in, I think, book selling and also publishing, uh, you know, uh, Oxford University Press has announced that their intention to unionize. So, you know, we're seeing things shift, shift in the publishing industry. And um, it's really exciting to be considered a part of that. Yeah, CWA is a great choice if you're trying to organize in the publishing and book selling industry. They really entered the, the field recently, very strongly. 
while we were organizing, uh, Verso books unionized with CWA. And once we were done unionizing another bookstore in Los Angeles, uh, Skylight, Skylight, uh, also unionized with CWA. So there's quite a lot of uh, unionizing specifically with Communication Workers of America happening in our industry. And I'll have to note proudly that in this small city, a town really of Longview, where I live, 40 miles north of Portland, uh, the Daily News of Longview, uh, their staff recently organized uh, with the help of CWA News Guild West. Uh, And so it's seen as small. And then recent interview with the uh, Dallas newspaper, again, CWA. So how is bargaining going, though? Because under current labor law, uh, the owners, the corporations, the businesses uh, really don't have much incentive administratively, regulatorily or legally to bargain in good faith. So how is that going? Yeah, I mean, there have been moments where bargaining was um, kind of put on hold and uh, we have issued uh, several um warnings about uh, certain things that were done that we were not happy about, that we thought were not in good faith. We also have seen from the lawyers uh, kind of self-service bargaining, where they seem to want to prolong bargaining, um, which is not in the interest of neither the workers nor the store. Uh, But other than that, um, we have uh, achieved... um, several, uh, you know, tentative agreements, I think about 10 tentative agreements by now, and we have almost put all the proposals that we have on the table by now. So we're just mostly waiting for the store's response to them. And um, yeah, it's going back and forth. We've been bargaining for about four months. We're hoping that we will get to some kind of uh, first contract by the end of the summer, hopefully. Although that is maybe a little, um, a little too optimistic on my part. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, our um, owner uh, doesn't come to the bargaining sessions, uh, so she has her lawyer be present there, uh, and that slows the process down because they actually have to run everything by her, but she's not there. Um, and uh, yeah, on the bargaining, there's their lawyer and our general manager on the store side, and then there we have a bargaining team of the workers who represent different departments, and our chief bargainer, Robert, and uh, secretary-treasurer of our local on our side. Um, so, What's the total number of workers there that you're representing? I think it's 30... 33? I think it's 33. We've had a few people leave and a few people join since we held our election, but we're, we're hovering around 33 workers right now. Well, that's just uh, very inspiring uh, words and news. Uh, again, I'm speaking with Casina and Celeste. I hope I pronounced those names correctly with Bookshop Santa Cruz, speaking of their uh, efforts during COVID, uh, successful efforts to organize their workplace and now they're sitting down at the bargaining table uh, with the owner uh, through their her proxy, the lawyer and manager. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of work on your side because, uh, I mean, that's time you you're, uh, have to dedicate uh, 
over and above uh, work and, and your uh, personal life, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it's quite, it's quite a time commitment. Even though we do get paid for the bargaining itself by CWA and we get excused from work, uh, of course, we can't do all the proposals and um, all the you know brainstorming during the, the those hours. So it's quite a lot of uh, time that we dedicate to it that is unpaid. And usually after hours, we have quite a few meetings every week to talk about the proposals, talk about uh, the way we want to present them, the way you know counter proposals, all those things. Uh, we try to poll our workers on certain important issues, like um, we've, we've had meetings and we polled uh, our workers about the reopening issues, right? Uh, we had certain certain concerns that are very specific to the store that weren't, were not something that we would necessarily include in the contract, but they were important in the moment of, you know, reopening after the pandemic, and it was like, the vaccinations and uh, whether or not we should reopen our public bathrooms and all these other things that are like uh, a very uh, necessary discussions right now that you know we would not have had quite uh, you know the same power without having a union. We think this this those kinds of decisions would have been made unilaterally on the side of the management. Uh, and now we had a chance to be at the table and have those things be discussed with uh, with the workers as equals. Um, so that's been great. Um, well, that's that's uh, very good, uh, uh, Celeste. Um, that uh, you're able to do that. I mean, the. Uh, as one person far smarter than myself put it, the uh, unions are indispensable. Uh, part of uh, society, function of society, uh, indispensable. I always would like to compare that to oxygen being uh, indispensable to life. They're not uh, good to have. They're not uh, uh, beneficial. They're indispensable. And we're seeing, I think, COVID uh, really brought that home. 33 workers being organized uh, may not sound like a lot, again, historically, uh, but I, I, what I uh, congratulate you, you two and the rest of your comrades and doing is uh, you're starting to build back that muscle memory. I think what we've seen, I feel what we've seen in the last, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 years with the decline of union membership, not only the direct membership declines, but uh, people no longer associate uh, unions with family members, an example, or someone they know or someone down the block. Uh, so we see this uh, tendency to uh, not respect picket lines, uh, not understand union issues, uh, maybe not have them in your forefront when you're voting in politics. So to me, you're kind of uh, rebuilding, you're putting some meat on a skeleton, if you will. Yeah, that was a, uh, something that we came up against frequently was, you know, uh, I would say a majority of our, our coworkers are under 30. And uh, many of them, you know, and many of them much younger, but, uh, a lot of them didn't just have never worked a union job and don't necessarily know what a union is. And we dealt with that also with the public, with people just not really quite understanding what it is. A lot of people associate union with strike. Um, so people thought that we were striking, which was not the case at all. We had to explain that there's like several steps before you get to that point, that this is in no way a strike. We are just uh, organizing collectively 
to express our interest in changing things and the way the workplace is run, you know, having more democratic decision making, uh, being considered when, uh, you know, decisions that affect our, our quality of work are, are made. Um, so, you know, uh, we were combating, you know, this kind of misinformation that, um, has been kind of pumped into the public sphere over the past, I don't know, 30 years or so. Um, and then we also, you know, a lot of people's uh, relationship to unions is um, just through teachers' unions. A lot of people, that's the only union that they're familiar with is they either have family member or, you know, most people have gone to school, um, you know, public school, so you, you uh, see people associating them with teachers' unions. And, um, you know, that's, that's a very different kind of uh, organizing than, than what our store is doing. We're a retail environment. You know, we're not dealing with uh, a board of education or, or a, you know, county uh, politics or anything like that funding from, from the county and the state. That's not something that we deal with at all. So there was some misinformation there as well that people, you know, that's their only touchstone. And so then that was, um, you know, being, being uh, impressioned on, on our organizing. And so, you know, in some ways we had to start from zero for some folks. And then for other folks, we kind of had to back up a little bit and then start again, just, just so everyone was on the same page about what we were really looking at uh, for our workplace uh, specifically. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, most popular misconceptions was that the union is a third party that we were bringing uh, into the store, and this was repeated many times by uh, our owner and management, too, that, you know, it's going to make everything so much more difficult, but we have this open-door policy, and now we will have to use lawyers to have any kind of discussions, which is, of course, true. And the union is not a third party. It is the workers of the store presenting in United Voice, um, you know, democratically elected uh, force within the store. Um, So this was something that we had to constantly remind people about. Yeah. Right. You know, that's interesting. It doesn't sound like in your case, um, the owners, uh, as of yet, have been really um, a hard case about this. But uh, when you look around, again, going back to the Amazon story in Alabama uh, and other st- other uh, organizing efforts, if you look at who knows how many millions of dollars Walmart, you know, invented the current model of uh, union pre- organizing prevention with uh, how many millions of dollars are spent uh, each year in the United States to prevent workplace organizing, uh, I, I, you, you have to understand it, in my opinion, that uh, how much they fear, that yes. it, how much they fear. Um, and uh, I think what they, you know, it's interesting. You talked about strikes. People ask about strikes. Um, no, uh, organizing a workplace is not necessarily about a strike, but that is ultimately our most powerful weapon. And uh, uh, because it deprives the owner of uh, their essential uh, a commodity and that's our labor, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's why uh, all, all the owners and all the companies want, want the no strike clause and all the contracts. Um, and that is something we will have in our contract as well, um, because that is something that is very, very important to all uh, owners and companies and um, 
uh, you know, organizations everywhere because they're very much afraid of of strikes. Are you, excuse me. Are you saying that uh, they've thrown that out on their on their end, their proposal of a no strike clause? Oh yes, and uh, we had to we had to really negotiate it because originally their no strike proposal was um, was very Byzantine and it was it was very long, like two pages long. It was the description of everything you can possibly imagine, like uh, you know, flyering, picketing. Um, even just basically talking about a strike and they wanted it to be considered a just cause to be terminated on the spot. Which is, of course, we were not going to agree to. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, we've been uh, negotiating the no-strike clause that is uh, more reasonable than that. Um, and, of course, we don't want our... Uh, our members to be fired on the spot for, for anything. Right. That's interesting. Again, that's how much they fear it. Um, yeah, flyering, uh, informational pickets. Uh, uh, it's like they want to keep a lid on it, to say the least. Well, I'm sure it's very tough to, uh, to sit down and, and bargain with them. Uh, but they but right. It's it is a very prevalent uh, matter across the country and collective bargaining agreements, CBAs, and no, no strike clause. A whole idea was to, uh, 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 you know, keep things smooth, if you will, but a little different. So again, Celeste and Casina out of a bookshop of Santa Cruz, uh, you're still at the bargaining table. You hope maybe optimistically the end of the summer, um, maybe afterwards you'll, you'll ink your first contract with, um, with the owner there. Um, uh, once again, congratulations, a very inspiring story. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, just, just one thing that I wanted to include, um, is that, you know, if anyone uh, listening has been to Santa Cruz, you'll know that it positions itself as a very liberal town, very, um, you know, progressive, and, and our store is no exception to that. And, and something that we as workers realized was, you know, we're benefiting from this kind of positioning of ourselves as like a liberal, uh, you know, haven, uh, you know, kind of a a progressive, uh, you know, space for, for thinking and, and intellectual, uh, you know, pursuits and, and reading and all those things. And so I think for me personally, I can't speak for everyone, but I realized is that, um, you know, if we want to see that sort of change in the world, this kind of, you know, leftist ideology that, that um, can create community and mutual aid and foster, um, you know, change in a positive way in the world. It starts at home. It starts with your relationships with your family, friends, coworkers, and you know, to, in order to change the macro, you have to start at the micro. And so, organizing our workplace—thirty-three people—that's drop in the bucket. Um, but we hope, or I hope personally, that this is you know uh, an indication of my generation and the generation of, of my coworkers um, fighting for change, for positive change for ourselves and our communities. Um, and it, I think it does, it does start at home. It starts with your personal relationships, the things that you can, you can change on a daily basis. 
Yeah, and I would like to add that, um, you know, we've been helping quite a few other places to organize and we love it. We love to spread this kind of energy around. So, you know, if anyone's listening and is interested in organizing their workplace and have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. We're on, on Twitter and Instagram at BSC Workers. You can also email us. Um, yeah, just get in touch, and we will be really happy to help and put you in contact with people that we know. It's been a great way to build a community. Uh, we've met so many other awesome unions. We've been uh, helped by so many people from outside of our industry. Uh, Anchor Union in San Francisco, which is a brewery union, has been super instrumental. Uh, you know, and we've been in contact with, uh, you know, unions for chocolate and unions for, uh, you know, pastries and all, all, <laughs> all, all kinds of different industries. And it's amazing, you know, and uh, if we all stick together and like recognize that we are like, despite us being in different industries, we're all um, in the same like customer service environment and we actually share a lot of the same concerns and a lot of the same problems. Uh, yeah, we, we can build a much stronger movement, you know? Excellent. Now, you know, I, I did have one thought when you talked about uh, uh, the city or organization that consider yourself liberal. Uh, uh, my impression over the years though is uh uh, many of these organizations, uh, be it big, especially big tech, uh, they're they're more than willing to welcome and embrace all of humanity, except when it comes to the labor organizer or the union activist. And then many too often it's call security. But it sounds like things are going well down there. So thanks again for your time. Keep in touch. Uh, reach out anytime you want to help amplify your message. And uh, 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 I'll... Uh, Sign off right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Solidarity. Solidarity. Okay. With that interview, we are finishing up the first hour of the radio show Labor Lines on KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 FM. Setting this show up. I'm recording it on the 17th of September to play on the 21st. Again, I'm John Anerchak. The show is Labor Lines. You can find Labor Lines, the entire show, and standalone interviews on the Labor Lines podcast on Anchor FM, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Google, and a few others out there. But kind of the home base there is thanks to Anchor FM. I've been up there for almost a year. Again, i like to shout out to uh, those who keep this radio station on the tracks. Lee Roberto's our station manager. The station board that started this, I don't know how many years ago. It's been a privilege to be on the air. I'm working on my third year. Hope to keep it up. Again, you can get hold of me at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com. Coming up again in the next hour of Labor Lines, I'm going to replay that interview with Chris Stowe about the interview, excuse me, the initiative in Idaho, Idaho Fair Wage. They'll probably come at the last half of this second hour. So in between, there'll be some music. Thanks again.